I just say, David and Elaine uh, would have been doing welcoming this morning, but obviously they're, they're away down with Tom uh, down south looking after him while he has his operation. So uh, if you didn't get a notice sheet, I'm just going to put some on the side here. Uh, so I think that's been quite a while, isn't it? So that's got some of the verses that we'll be looking at uh, this morning. Let's pray just before we, uh, we come to the word. Father, we'll thank you that we can look at this big question. Father, thank you for the people of Otley who uh, voted. And uh, Father, this was the big concern that people had. So Father, help us as we look into this this morning. Father, we feel it's such a big question. Uh, Father, we, we don't know whether we can do it justice this morning. But Father, pray you'd speak to us as we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Tuesday, my sister was diagnosed with cancer of the womb. Uh, she's 36 years old. Uh, we're waiting to find out what's uh, going to be happening uh, with that. On the same day, a minute's silence was held to mark the first anniversary of Finsbury Park, the terrorist attack, where a van was driven into a crowd of people near a North London mosque. The same day, a 20-year-old rap artist was shot dead in Florida. He himself was facing charges of aggravated uh, battery against a pregnant woman. That same day, statistics tell us around 1,500 people across the world were murdered, and around 3,000 got to such a low point that they took their own lives. And that's on top of the 145,000 people who died of natural causes. That was just one Tuesday this week. Why would God allow such things to happen? Well, that's the question that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, three disclaimers, though, before we start. First of all, I'm not claiming to be an expert on suffering. So I've faced some hardships in my life. Uh, but in a group of this size of people, I know there'll be people who have faced far more uh, suffering in their own lives than I have. I'm not claiming to uh, have some sort of extra knowledge in that sense than, than you would have. Second disclaimer is that I'm not claiming to have the whole answer this morning. We're going to look at this for about half an hour. And really, this is a question that's been taxing people for half a lifetime. Most of us, hasn't it? So we're going to start uh, looking at this question. We're going to make some headway on it. But we could look at this in a hundred different ways. So please don't feel that I'm trying to exhaust uh, the subject. And please don't think that we're going to solve the problem of suffering in half an hour and come away with a neat answer. There are no real neat answers to this question. And actually, all of us struggle to look at this objectively, don't we? Because all of us are affected by this question of suffering. The third disclaimer is that I'm going to quote a fair amount of music, popular music, this morning. That's not to lighten things up, uh, but I think often with music and, and when people write lyrics to songs, often they're looking to engage uh, with big questions. Uh, they're a way of learning what our world thinks about things by just looking at what they, uh, what they write in songs. It's a mirror, really, on what we're thinking. So we're going to look at a few different things, a bit like we might look at poets, but we're going to look at pop songs, because they're more generally what our culture is thinking. So where do we start? Well, we're going to start this morning. I think all my points are going to come up at once, but uh, we're going to start this morning with uh, the character of God. That's where we're going to start with as we look at this question of suffering. What is God like? And we'll see as we go through this why we're starting there. Let me give you a quote by uh, a famous atheist professor, Richard Dawkins. He described God as a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, uh, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. 
That was how Richard Dawkins described God. Well, I want to say to start off, if that is true, then we've got the answer to our question already, haven't we, if you think about it? If that's true, that God is all those things, then there's suffering in the world because God is mean and nasty. The world is cruel because God is cruel. But the thing is that Richard Dawkins' assessment of the world, to put it lightly, is very, very wrong. His assessment of God is very, very wrong. Because actually, when you look at the Bible, you see a God who is loving and caring. And I don't just mean the New Testament. Sometimes you get this idea, don't you, that it's the God of the New Testament that's nice, and the God of the Old Testament is nasty. But God in the Old Testament clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins after they rebelled against him, shows mercy to the murderer Cain who kills his own brother. God hears the cry of his people who are in slavery during the Exodus and rescues them. God sticks with those people even after they rebel against him in the wilderness. Again and again in the Bible, people provoke God, and yet God shows mercy. Think about how the Old Testament describes him. He's described as an eagle that cares for their young. He's described as a spurned husband who takes his runaway wife back, even after she's run away from him. He's described as faithful, loving, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a father to his children. And in the New Testament, we see that even more, don't we? He's described as love. He's described as merciful, full of grace and truth. And ultimately, we see the character of God as we look at Jesus, God coming into the world. So we saw before, didn't we, how he healed the sick. He welcomed the outcast. He's a man who taught his disciples to turn the other cheek, to wash each other's feet. The God of the Bible is the most loving character in the whole of history. So think about it then. Why is suffering a problem to us? It's a problem because we expect something different, don't we? We sort of know that there's a loving God and somehow it jars with us that things in the world go wrong. We know that there's something wrong with suffering. That that's not how it should be if there's a loving God. Because if you just go along with things, well, you, a Red Hot Chili Peppers wrote this. They said, earthquakes are to a girl's guitar. They're just another good vibration. As though the sort of natural disasters of the world, well, they're, they're a good thing, really. But we know that that's not true, don't we? We know in our own hearts that that's not right. We expect something different because we expect God to be kind and just. Richard Dawkins also wrote this on suffering. He put, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But if that were the case, then why would we have a problem with suffering at all? Why do we ask the question? So suffering in that sense is not a disproof of a loving God. It's actually because we presume a loving God that we presume a purpose to the universe, a meaning to life, a preciousness to life, that we even have a problem with suffering at all, that we even ask the question. So the mismatch between what our head tells us should be and what we actually experience points us to the fact that there should be a loving God. It's like our heads are hardwired to think that way. If it wasn't, then we wouldn't ask the question. If we believed that God was cruel, that there wasn't a God, we'd just accept things the way they are, wouldn't we? But as it is, we don't. We know there's something wrong with suffering. Because deep inside, we expect a loving God. 
So it does come down to the character of God. That's why we ask the question. But if there is a loving God, then what then would prompt him to allow suffering into his world? Well, that brings us to our second point, the origin of suffering. Do you ever find yourself singing along to songs that you disagree with? You know, you sort of start singing something, you know, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, and you suddenly realise you're talking to your cat uh, or something like that, you know, those sorts of things. Um, I find myself sometimes singing along to songs I disagree with. Uh, for me, it's Billy Joel. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, heard his, his song, We Didn't Start the Fire. He's got that rundown of the 20th century in song form. Not that I've got anything against Billy Joel, I actually really like his music or the song, but for me, it expresses the problem that our world has with suffering, the thing that it's got wrong about suffering. I'm quite happy with the verses where he sort of lists off what happens in history of the 21st century, but it's the chorus that it's got wrong. The chorus goes, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we're trying to fight it. But here's the problem. We kind of did start the fire, didn't we? as the human race, we did actually set the whole thing in motion. The Bible shows us that it hasn't always been this way. We did something as a, as a mankind, as a human race, to set the world on the path that it's on now. We did set the world on fire. And the Bible, you see, explains that suffering is a foreign invader in our world. It has a beginning, it came in at one point. You see, religions like Buddhism, well, they teach that suffering has no beginning, that it's there in the very fabric of the universe. So because of that, the only hope we have to escape suffering is to cease to exist. That's what nirvana is in Buddhism. But the Bible teaches that suffering had a beginning. It wasn't always there. It started when mankind chose to rebel against God. It started when mankind chose to declare its independence from its loving ruler. We tried to overthrow God and his right to rule. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Ditching God and trying to go it our own way. We chose not to live with God anymore, but to sort of go it alone, if you like. But in doing so, we lost paradise. We lost the very good world that God had made for us. And our very good world became a messed up world. And we became messed up people. This is what God said to mankind right back at the beginning after we'd messed things up. It's on the back of your notice sheets. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the world now is, is messed up. It's on fire, if you like. And it's us that did it. We were, uh, mankind caused the world to be set on fire. And so everybody who's been born since is born into a world on fire. But why is it still on fire? Why is there still, why didn't it just stop with Adam and Eve? Well, according to Billy Joel, uh, we didn't like it, but we're trying to fight it. But again, is that really true? Are we really fighting the fire in our world? In that song, he lists off events in the 20th century. Let me give you a sample of some of the things that he alludes to in the song. The atomic bomb, Joseph Stalin and the rise of the Soviet Union, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the assassination of Kennedy, the violent revolution in Iran, the rise of drug culture. 
Does that really sound like we're trying to fight the fire? Or let me get more personal. What about us as individuals? Have we really devoted our lives to fighting the fire? I think if we're being honest with ourselves, the answer is no. Sometimes we throw water on the fire, don't we? Sometimes we try and alleviate suffering. But more often we throw petrol on the fire, don't we? We upset people. We say harmful things to people. We pursue our own selfish agendas. We may not be murderers or criminals, but in our own way, we add our own bit of fuel to the fire. So why is the world still on fire? Well, we've been lighting our own little fires since the fire was lit in the first place. We're a race of, of arsonists, if you like, trying to pass ourselves off as firefighters. But that only answers why we haven't stopped it. Why we haven't stopped it. But couldn't God stop it? Couldn't God put the fire out, if you like? Well, two parts to that answer. The first is, yes, he will. And the second is, yes, he could. Firstly, yes, he will. The Bible explains that one day God will end this world and all its suffering and begin a new one without suffering, a new heavens and a new earth. This is what it says in Revelation 21. Again, that's on the back of your notice sheets. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the chaotic sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. You see, one of the encouraging things about knowing that actually suffering had a beginning is that we also know it can have an end. God promises, even back at the dawn of time, that one day he would end evil. So God is not indifferent to suffering. He's not just letting it happen. He isn't passive. But if history is a book, then we live in the middle of the book. Before the happy ending, if you like, at the end. One day there will be a happy ending, but for now we face life in the middle of the book and all that comes with that until we get to the end. So yes, he will end suffering one day. But the other answer is actually, yes, he could end suffering. That is true. The Bible is quite clear that God is powerful enough to overcome suffering because one day we know we just found out that he will. He's capable of doing it. So why doesn't he? Well, one answer people come up with to this question is karma. You know, the idea of what goes around comes around. So Al, I think, alluded it to, you know, the child picking up the box and dropping it on his foot. Um, this idea that what goes around comes around, it's not a new idea. It's found in Hinduism, Buddhism, and even in some parts of the Bible, but not the, not the bits that are, are telling the truth in that. Hang on, get this right. <laughs> um, there are parts of the Bible that record what people have said. Uh, so there are people who tell lies, like the devil in the Bible. In Job, there are some of Job's friends who tell him things about his suffering that aren't true, but they are recorded for us in the Bible. So I'll just read this to you. I couldn't fit this on the back of the. Uh, uh, we couldn't fit this on the back of your notice sheet. But Job chapter four, uh, one to nine. This is somebody trying to comfort someone in suffering. This is what they said. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, "If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking?" 
Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and your integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who was it that was innocent that ever perished? Or who were the upright that were ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they're consumed. Do you see what he's trying to say to Job there? He's trying to say, if if you're suffering, it's your fault. You must have done something. What goes around comes around. The same idea is found in that reading that we had earlier in Jesus' death. The Jews of Jesus' day believed in some notion of karma or something similar. So if you look at verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 9, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see there, the disciples are linking his suffering with some specific sin that he'd done. Who sinned? The question is not if somebody had sinned, but who? And the Pharisees seem to have the same idea down in verse 34. They say to that man, they answered him, you were born in utter, utter sin and you would teach us, and they cast him out. The idea that he was basically disabled because of his sin. But Jesus is having none of it, is he? Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is saying it's not that sin leads to suffering in the individual case. It's not him or his parents. Actually, there was another reason why this man was suffering. There's a purpose behind it. In this case, it was God's glory. And the same was true for Job, wasn't he? Job wasn't suffering for some specific sin in his life. It's not karma that brought his suffering. Actually, in Job's case, it was quite the opposite. He actually suffered because he was doing really well. Because of his uprightness, his goodness. Whatever the answer is as to why God doesn't stop suffering in this world and allows it to continue, it's not some God-operated karma. That said, back to Al's point, there are things in life that if you do, they do come back to you, don't they? So, for example, if you punch someone, it's likely you'll get punched back. That's just the way things work, isn't it? If you spend your life being gluttonous and eating lots, then expect to have weight problems. Actions do have consequences. And sometimes in the Bible, God does give people a taste of their own medicine in this life. But it's not by any means a rule. God will see justice done, but not in this life. In this life, we see bad things happening to seemingly good people. In this life, we see good things happening to seemingly bad people. So there's no God-operated karmic system. And I, for one, am relieved by that, actually. So we don't say, and we won't say, that disabled children deserve it because of something that they've done in the past life. I don't know if you remember Chris Hoddle, uh, the England manager a few years ago, was sacked for making comments along those lines. And yet, actually, it's an idea that's believed by billions of people across the world, this idea of karma. So karma is not a nice idea. It's a cruel idea that tells suffering people that it's their fault. I want nothing to do with karma. So if it's not karma, then what is it? Well, the Bible's answer is that in a universe where suffering is present, 
where the fire has already started, there are many reasons why people suffer. Why doesn't God stop it now? Well, because in some way it serves a purpose in his great plan. But what that purpose is, we cannot know for sure. We're given possibilities, so suffering rouses a sleeping world to its true state. I don't know if you've ever wondered if there was no suffering in this world after the fall, after Adam and Eve rebelled, what it would be like. So imagine if Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and now humanity are actually facing judgment before God. We're facing uh, eternity in hell. But our life is perfect. Our life is absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing ever happens. Nothing uh, ever upsets us. And then we get to the end of it and we end up in, under judgment. That to me seems a very strange idea. That, that sort of would seem to imply there's no problem through life. But there is a problem. And suffering sort of rouses us to the fact that there is a problem between us and God. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books, wrote this in a book called The Problem of Pain. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So it does, in a general sense, point us to the fact that we've got a problem. So that's one possibility of suffering. But suffering also grows the believer, the, the Christian. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews. Uh, I'll refer you to our church website rather than going into it again. But the abridged version basically is that God brings character growth out of suffering. For believers, actually, they find that when they look back on times when they've really been through bad things, actually, that's the time when they've most grown in their faith. So he allows suffering to allow us to grow. But it's worth pointing out that with those things, well, with Job, it was neither of those things. With the man born blind, it was neither of those things either. So we come back to this. For individual suffering, there can be no definite answer as to why it's happening. Why did my dad die so young? I don't know. Why did my wife miscarry our children? I don't know. But it comes back then to what we do know, the character of God, where we started. God is good. God is loving. God is kind. So that even if I don't know what he's doing by allowing these things, I know that he knows things better than I do. Somebody said that our, our world is a bit like a tapestry. And I don't know if you ever looked at the back of a tapestry. You get those really lovely ones, don't you? But if you look at the back, it's all a real mess, isn't it? There's bits of thread all over the place. Well, that's the life from our perspective, isn't it? We see all the mess. But God sees the tapestry from the other side. He sees the wonderful picture that he's making. Does that make God some sort of cruel puppet master, disinterestedly pulling the strings to make his tapestry? Not at all. Actually, God himself entered into our suffering. And that brings us to our final point, the suffering of Christ. One of the unique things about the Christian answer to suffering is that God himself voluntarily entered into our world to suffer. When Jesus encountered suffering, he wept. It was not the, the British stiff upper lip, because Jesus wasn't British, was he? When his friend Lazarus died, he wept. You've got it on the back of your notice sheets. That's the shortest verse in the Bible, isn't it? Jesus wept. That was actually about his friend dying. And he wasn't just pretending to cry for the benefit of the people who were watching. It was real. God is not unmoved by suffering. 
And he experienced it himself firsthand. And it's not just the cross. We get to the cross, that's the ultimate example, but he experienced a life of suffering as well. My dad died when I was uh, 29, and uh, I got quite upset about that at the time, trying to work out what was going on. You know, why would God allow this to happen? Just as we were about to have children and needed the support and things like that. It struck me a few years ago that Jesus was 30 when he started his ministry. Almost certainly his adopted dad Joseph had died by that point. Jesus probably lost his dad even younger than I did. And do you know what? I bet he cried his eyes out at that. So God doesn't ask us to go through things that he hasn't gone through himself. Actually, Christ went through suffering. Listen to Isaiah 53.3, describing Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So we see that actually Jesus lived a life of suffering, of hardship, of grief. And ultimately, the hugeness of God's love, the fact that he would go through this for us, the truth of God's character, is seen in one great act of suffering. Jesus' death on the cross. You see, here we see the extent of our darkness and the extent of God's mercy towards us. On the cross, we see the ultimate example of what we talked about before. Sin, where we try and overthrow God and his right to rule. God comes into the world, speaks a message of peace, of love, of reconciliation. What's mankind's response? We murder him. We give him a mock trial. We deny him justice and we crucify him. Generations on, we're still starting fires, aren't we? And yet on the cross, we see the ultimate example of God's love. Jesus on the cross turned our evil intentions for good. He was bearing the punishment we deserve for our sin on himself. If you like, he allowed himself to be burned by the fire. The fire of our sin and the fire of God's anger at our sin. It's because of him that one day God will put the fire out altogether. But in the meantime, what do we do then? If Christ is going to the world, what was the point? Well, the answer is that we need to be found in him. What do I mean by that? I mean that we need to run to him for refuge. Here's a question for you. You don't have to shout out the answer, just think about it for a second. What's the safest place to stand in a forest fire? What's the safest place to stand in a forest fire? I don't know if you've ever been in that sort of situation. They have quite a lot in Australia, don't they, in America. Safest place to stand in a forest fire is where the fire is already burned. In those fires in America and Australia, you often see little fires starting away from the main fire. And it's people lighting the little fires to stand in an area where it's already burned. They sort of like safe fires to stand in a place where when the fire comes, it will have nothing to consume. On the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be burned that we might have a safe place to stand. He took the fires of sin and hell that we need to do that. That one day, if we stand in him, we can face a future with no suffering, an eternity with him. But we need to turn to him now in this life. Will we have a life free of suffering now if we do that? Well, no. In fact, the Bible says that as Christians, we follow Christ's pattern. We follow in his footsteps, suffering now and glory later. But there is a promise that he will turn our suffering for good. 
That even though we won't know what the answers are to why we're suffering, we can know that God is working for our good in it. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who are called, uh, sorry, for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. The all things for Christians includes their suffering, even if we don't know in what way. So I'm aware this morning that I've really only scratched the surface of the question. And I'm aware I've probably raised more questions than I've given answers. But can I leave you with three thoughts uh, this morning? First one, if someone is suffering, don't try and tell them why they are suffering. Don't try and say, right, this is it, this is, I know the answer. Because we cannot know. Certainly don't try and link it with a particular sin in their life. Because we can't see the tapestry from the other side, can we? We don't know what's going on. So don't pretend that you can. Second thing to leave you with, if you've disagreed with something that I've said this morning, don't go off in a huff. Come and talk to me. These are emotive topics and we're imperfect people, myself included. Come talk to me and let's see what we can work out together. You'll be aware I haven't been able to cover every question or, or objection in half an hour, but I'll happily talk to you some more. The third thing I want to leave you is, if you are suffering at this moment, don't suffer in silence. A sermon is not normally what I'd give to a suffering person. Suffering people don't always need a sermon. Sometimes they need a shoulder, don't they? That's what Joe's friends, actually, and Joe don't seem to understand. They're actually there supporting him. It's when they start speaking uh, at that point that they come into trouble. We've dealt necessarily with suffering in an abstract way this morning, if you like, out there. But suffering is never abstract. It's always specific things, isn't it? It's my sister with cancer. It's that terrorist attack that we mentioned in Finsbury Park. It's that 20-year-old singer shot dead. It's a thousand Tuesdays, isn't it, in each of our lives. But do remember that God doesn't have Tuesdays off. God is always there. And we need to be there for the needy too, the hurting, the suffering, weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn, just like Jesus did. So let's pray that God would give us the strength to do that as we walk with other people and uh, in their suffering with our own suffering as well. So let's pray. Father God, we, we've barely scratched the surface this morning, Father. We pray that we would understand better who you are. And Father, we would trust you even when we don't understand what's going on. Uh, Father, we thank you that one day you will end suffering. Father, one day uh, we can enjoy eternity with you. Father, pray that you would help us to turn to you now to seek refuge in Christ where the fire has already burned. Uh, Father, thank you that you would come into this world and die for us, that we might be able to uh, be safe and might be able to enjoy that future together. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chris. We're going to uh, stand and sing one last song.